Welcome to the Gloria Purvis Podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me, and I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Dr. Bernice King. She is a global thought leader, orator, peace advocate, and chief executive officer of the King Center, the Martin Luther King Jr. Center for Nonviolent Social Change. She's the youngest child of the great Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Who was Martin Luther King Jr.? He was a civil rights leader, and he was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee in 1968. And so I'm glad that we're having this conversation with his daughter, who is committed to upholding his legacy, who is committed to helping people understand what her father truly meant, and to help people get the context for his comments and his ideas so that they will not be misrepresented. Social media has been used sometimes to amplify his voice and also sometimes to confuse the meaning of his words. And in particular, we see debates about colorblindness. What does that mean? We talk about the violent response or riots, as people call them sometimes, and people focusing on that, but Martin Luther King called that the language of the unheard. So what is the colorblindness? What is the language of the unheard. How did her father see these things? Where is it being misrepresented? And how could we be truer to what he means? What does ideas mean in guiding us in this movement for racial justice as well as economic equality? Because that was something his Poor People's Campaign wanted to highlight nationally, that there needs to be social justice and economic equality. So I think it's important that we listen to the words of Martin Luther King Jr. and his daughter, Dr. Bernice King, because although they aren't Catholic, these things that we discuss need to be examined more closely in the church. How does it impact us as church, Catholic church, and how we respond to these issues? How does it speak to us as individual Catholics that have to experience these things in our community, in our families, in our parishes? I'm also glad that I'm speaking with her, a fellow Christian, during Black Catholic History Month. November is Black Catholic History Month because the National Black Catholic Clergy Caucus of the United States voted in July of 1990, while they were meeting at Fordham University, a Jesuit university in New York City, they voted that month to establish November as Black Catholic History Month. And the reason they picked November was because of the number of important dates of Catholics of African descent that fall within this month. And the purpose of this month, Black Catholic History Month, is to remember all the saints and souls of African descent who are Catholic. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media, where real, honest conversations are happening on the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And that's unique. You may not agree with everything we publish or even everything we talk about on this podcast. And that's okay. That's healthy. We need to listen to each other and be open to different ideas and perspectives. So if this podcast is meaningful to you, please support it by getting a digital subscription to America. Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Dr. Bernice King is up next. Dr. King, I'm so thrilled you're here with me on the Gloria Purvis podcast. I have so many questions for you. I really am interested in your assessment of the current moment. We had the Black Lives Matter movement and the killing of George Floyd. 
And as you look at where we are since then, how would you say Christian communities, all of us, Catholics, evangelicals, Protestants, how have Christian communities in the United States responded to the murder of George Floyd and the movement for racial justice since 2020? You know, that's an interesting question because I'm always asking, where is the church? Where are the people of God? Because we are to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. We are to be the head and not the tail. And although I recognize that there are pastors and congregations across our nation who are involved in social justice work, I don't think we've seen anything the likes of what my father led in the 50s and 60s, where there were a number of pastors who coordinated and collaborated to attack segregation in the South. And so I'm not sure the state of the church as it relates to social justice. I long for the day when we see a revival of what we saw in the 50s and 60s. And I'm not sure how that happens, but I know that it is necessary because I believe that there has to be people at the forefront who understand the importance of the power of God and attacking these evils and injustices that we are faced with. You know, I wonder how much of it is that the type of racism that we face doesn't have that overt violence, like during the time of your Mm. father, during the time of my father, my grandparents, things like that. And so people think, well, if it's not that ugly kind of racism like that, then racism really doesn't exist and we we need to be comfortable. Although we had on video the murder of George Floyd. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so I keep thinking, what do these responses reveal about our understanding of racism? I think there's a lack of understanding. You know, I don't think we have done a great job of helping the world who feels like they're not impacted by racism to fully understand what it is. For some people, it is those ugly one-off acts that you see, the hate, in other words, and the vitriol that comes from individuals. But for many of us, we understand it to be a much more complex, systemic, institutionalized practice that has outcomes that gravely impact communities of color, especially the Black community. Yes. You can't put your hands on that if you don't live it or you're not constantly exposed to it through some form of education or awareness campaign. So we have a lot of work to do. Those of us who are conscious of what racism is, we have a lot of work to do in terms of education and awareness. And we got to get beyond the vitriol. We got to get beyond the partisanship of it. And even we have to get beyond the black and white of it because white supremacy has infected and affected all of us in different ways. Yes. You know, for those in the white community, the obliviousness, the ignorance, and the, even if it's not conscious, the subconscious notion of white superiority, they're victimized by that and don't even realize it. It's wrong thinking. Yes. One of the things that struck me is every time there's been a law passed, so let's say civil rights legislation is passed, but the people who were in power and disenfranchising and undercutting human flourishing in the Black community were the self-same people still in those positions in business, in military, in commerce, in education that were then tasked with 
having a cultural change within these sectors. And what we saw, if you read about it, is the resistance by, oh, now all of a sudden that we have integrated schools, there's a concern around standards and quality. And so you saw coded language and coded policies that while on their face didn't seem to be racist, in their intent and in their application was very much a resistance to integration, a resistance to embracing Black equality. And these are the things that we inherit. So then you started to see the misuse of colorblindness, if you will, to tear down affirmative action. So to see race at all in any kind of admissions to college was seen as racist itself. And I'm like, that's not what colorblindness meant. I mean, that's not what your father meant, at least as I understood it, when he talked about, I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. And people have taken that to mean that you cannot see color whatsoever, not in the administration of justice, not in assessing if something's wrong. Maybe I'm misunderstanding what your father meant by that quote. How would you help us understand it? I think what he was saying is that we would live in a nation where there would be equity and equality and that a person's skin color would not be the definer of access. And so I think people have really taken that totally out of context. The reality is that we've done a lot of outward things to address what people perceive on whichever side or however they perceive it related to race and racism. And when I mean outward, I mean we have passed laws, put legislation in place. Some people have connected with people of other cultures, races, Mm -hmm. but we haven't done a lot of heart work. Yes. And we have to run parallel tracks that while we're working on the outside, we also work on the inside. There has to be a, a transformation in thinking, and there has to be a change in the heart condition. You know, my father, when he was writing about racism in his book, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos and Community, he talked about ultimately the answer to our race problem would be when men, and he meant men and women in that sense, obey the unenforceable, that there's no law in place because it's etched. You know, like the Bible talks about the laws being etched in our heart. And so when they're etched in our heart, we behave differently. We see differently and we behave differently. And so we have to begin to work simultaneously on people's heart. Many times when we make change in this nation on any front, we don't prepare people. True. And we make a lot of assumptions that everybody understands this is what's fair, this is what's just. And we never parallel it with conversations, preparation, you know, (laughs) and education campaigns so that people understand it. That's not, you know, laced with language that sometimes can be exclusionary. When the Montgomery bus protest ended, my father was very intentional about instructing individuals about what had happened. In other words, he said to them, look, this is not a win over white people. This is a win for justice. And so when we return to the buses, this has to be our posture. We can't be like, yay, yay, we won kind of stuff. 
Right. Uh, because this is new for them. They have been accustomed to a certain way. So he prepared the people. We don't do that today. We don't talk people through these processes as we're changing our laws. One of the things I noticed throughout history is it seems as if Black progress or justice for Black people, for some reason, is perceived as a loss for white people. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. even in when you have these highly publicized court cases around police brutality, let's take, for example, the trial of Derek Chauvin for murdering George Floyd. The verdict, I saw such disparate reactions. I was so shocked to see among many white Catholics, unfortunately, rage at this verdict because they did not see a murder. Okay. And they saw this as something that would harm the white community, that there was justice served in Derek Chauvin being found guilty of murder. And I kept thinking, what kind of interior work has to happen for people to apply this understanding that George Floyd was a child of God, made in God's image and likeness and worthy of dignity and respect, as is Derek Chauvin. And he was behaving beneath himself when he was murdering George Floyd. How do we do that? You talked about the law that's unenforceable, right? Things that are unenforceable. What is the beginning of that interior change? I mean, because I know there are people listening saying, how can I start this interior work? What advice would you give them? Well, start, now this is weird. Start from the outside in by literally putting you in the shoes of these different scenarios. Put yourself in the shoe, be George Floyd that day yourself mm. and process that in your psyche. Because as you process you in those shoes in your psyche, you're going to come across different thoughts that will emerge and you'll have to do an audit of all of these thoughts that you have mm. and ask critical questions. And one of the questions will be, is George any different than I am? Mm. And I think we don't do that enough. We don't allow ourselves to think, of, we think at a distance, at arm's length, that person over there, we don't connect ourselves to people. We're disconnected. And that's why daddy often told us, you know, we're caught in this inescapable network of mutuality and tied in a single garment of destiny. What affects one directly affects all directly. And I can't be all that I'll be to you all that you all be and et cetera. How do we get people to understand our interconnectedness, our interrelatedness, and do unto others as you would have them, in the, as the words of the Lord, of the Bible, unto right. you? You know, we hear things out here, but we don't bring them inside of us for real. You know, and that's how I deal with the Word of God. Whenever I'm dealing with a scripture, I don't read it as something as a historical document, although I know it is. Right. I allow it to come into me and I try to allow myself to immerse myself in it. And we don't do enough of those exercises. We're just kind of hearing in a very, you know, surface way. Yeah. But this is deep work. It means stop, slow down, pay attention. Think about your reaction at that moment. What was triggered? Because we all have triggers too. Right. So it's not an immediate thing. It's not something we can do quickly. It's a process. It's a process and it may require some discomfort. It's going to require discomfort. Exactly. It's going to require some discomfort. Because we don't, most of us don't audit our thoughts, our reactions, mm -hmm. our responses. Most of us don't sit back and evaluate 
that interaction I just said, that conversation, those feelings that are going through me. We don't stop and pay attention to all of that. We just kind of, you know, every day just moving through all of these different emotions and thoughts with no thought. We'll be back in a minute. You know, I would say, as I was thinking about like what happened with George Floyd, actually, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, all of that, I have been reading about the experience of Black Protestant evangelicals and frankly, talking to many Black Catholics during this time period. And it seems like we've been having parallel experiences in our churches. The Black Protestant evangelicals have been noticing an otherness in these predominantly white churches in response to these human tragedies, in response to these abuses and people leaving. And I've had that same kind of conversation with Black Catholics. What would be your advice to these Black Christians who may think they need to leave Christianity because of the responses of feeling an otherness in light of these very highly publicized murders of Black people and the lack of solidarity, if you will, that they're seeing from their other white Christians in their churches? Uh, first of all, I don't think they're leaving Christianity. I think they're leaving institutionalized religion. Okay. And I understand that because I left. You know, there may have to be an emergence of something new. I think there's a, a great falling away right now uh, that is happening with the church as a whole. Because I, I really think something is on the verge. I don't know exactly what that is. And I think people have to find each other that are in that state because I think that's the collective, the critical mass collective that can bring the change because I think those are the kind of people who are soul searching, you know, Mm -hmm. who do take serious the word of God and the ways of Christ. And uh, it's going to take the connectedness and the collaborativeness in order to address these serious issues. I mean, we're at a we're at a critical juncture in our in our nation that if something new does not emerge, I'm afraid where we're headed personally. And I know that the temperatures are very high, but you know, we cannot let our emotions, particularly the negative, the emotions that can be more destructive or paralyzing, like anger and fear overtake us because we've got to be in a place to spiritually hear from God. I know this sounds cliche, but we've got to hear from God and get the mind of God in all of this because it's something that we're not grasping as a whole Mm -hmm. that's breaking the yoke of this stuff off of our nation. I don't know what else to say. I literally am saying to you, that I have not, Bernice A. King, fifth generation preacher, has not been connected to an institutional church in the past mm-hmm. 10 years. Yeah. The Lord pulled me out yeah. to purge me of some things uh, that came from institutionalized religion. Because I do think, you know, when Jesus said to the woman at the well, the hour is coming is now when the true worshipers will worship me in spirit and truth. I think we've reached that stage now because remember they would argue they were discussing the place of worship, right. physical place. And Jesus said there's another level that is now here. And I think the pandemic was that level for many people. Some people have to come out 
to get their head and their heart clear. Mm -hmm. Because if they stay in, they may get more depressed, hopeless, angry, mad. So there may have to be a season for that person so that they can be a cleaner and a purer vessel to approach this because you cannot approach this with anger and bitterness. You cannot. So this reminds me though, because when you talked earlier about people dealing with their interior and dealing with their responses, to me, that sounds a lot like the work that would need to be done to have the kind of self-mastery where you can have a nonviolent response. So a lot of the things that I thought about in the civil rights movement in what your father was able to model in nonviolence mm-hmm. is a tremendous amount of self-mastery, self-control mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. emotion, of the mind, mm-hmm. using reason. And I sometimes think people misunderstand nonviolence. They think that this is easy, sort of passive thing. No, but it isn't. And and maybe you could talk a little bit about how that nonviolent response is rooted in your understanding of Christianity. I think Jesus has made his word clear. We just we wrestle with it personally. Mm-hmm. And when he said, love your enemies, he didn't put any conditions there. He didn't say, would you? He commanded us to love our enemies, to do good to them that hate you. That's the part we skip over. When I hear people talking about, they say, love you and bless them to curse you and pray for them. But we don't talk about the do good to them that hate you. Mm. It is that matter of fact, but it's not that easy. And we have to commit ourselves. You know, the first thing a person has to say, am I truly committed to the way of Christ? I think that's what every person who says they are Christian, Catholic, follower of Christ has to do. Am I really committed to the way of Christ? Mm -hmm. And I don't mean rhetorically. I mean, seriously, going through the thought process and saying, am I committed to it? And am I willing to sacrifice my entire life to follow it? Amen. Doesn't mean I'm going to make a mistake, but this is not going to happen if people do not make that commitment. The development of the discipline comes out of that process. So it's just like working out on a daily basis. You know, it's an everyday process. Nonviolence is not easy. It is a discipline. Uh, But it's a discipline that comes out of that space of the Sermon on the Mount. And I know that your father, because some people would uh, have confused the Black Lives Matter protests or uprising. Some people called it riots as a problem, as that being violent. But one of the things that your father was quoted as saying is that riots are the language of the unheard. Yeah, riot is the language of the unheard. Must see that riots do not develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society, which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots. In the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. What is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. It has failed to hear that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice, equality, and humanity. So I I just want to 
move on from that and just talk a little bit about some comments that the Holy Father made regarding your father. Pope Francis, in a special joint session of Congress in 2015, held up your father. He said, I think of the march with Martin Luther King led from Selma to Montgomery 50 years ago as part of the campaign to fulfill his dream of full civil and political rights for African-Americans. That dream continues to inspire us all. I am happy that America continues to be, for many, a land of dreams. Dreams which lead to action, to participation, to commitment. Dreams which awaken what is deepest and truest in the life of a people. What is your reaction maybe to like the Holy Father quoting or bringing up your father, holding up your father and his dream as something for our country? Well, I think when he lifted it up, he actually lifted it up as a dream for our world because of who he is. You know, this is the aspiration of people all over the world. And, you know, certainly when you think about that day when he stood there, he was really making a prophetic declaration. And it was like a proclamation of what the kingdom of God should be like in the earth. And so I think it was apropos for him to lift that in this nation as the Pope, but also in this nation that is a microcosm of the world in many respects. You know, at the end of the day, we are all called to follow the way and example of Christ and their archetype. Martin Luther King was an archetype of Christ. He was someone in our vicinity of time. I'll say it that way because most of us didn't know him and weren't born, you know, during that time. I was, but many people weren't. But it's the closest thing that we have to that kind of archetype who set, you know, an example for the rest of the world. So I thank God that he lifted this up so that people can now study and understand, you know, how do we bring about just a humane and equitable and peaceful world? Look at this example here. Dr. King, I am deeply moved by basically the invitation that you've given to all our listeners to do that introspective work so that we could live in solidarity and perhaps one day build that beloved community that your father talked about. And I thank you for the continued work you're doing in helping us to reflect on this and actually giving us hope that this can be done. Okay. That this can be done, that we can do this work. And so I deeply appreciate that positivity in your message, as well as the challenge to look inside, walk in somebody else's shoes, and to also take some self-care in trying to do this work. Yes, exactly. So that we can, you know, take some self-care in trying to do this because it's not necessarily going to be easy. We're going to face some discomfort. We're going to have to walk in the footsteps of Christ. That includes following him to Calvary. Yes. So we know. We know the victory's been won. And, and getting to the resurrection. Yes. And getting to the resurrection. Yes. That's exactly right. That there is going to be that great getting up day where we can all rejoice. I know we have a lot of younger listeners as well who are much more removed from the lived experience of the civil rights movement. But we need to let them know who your father is and that you're continuing this very important work. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. You can learn more about Dr. Bernice King's work and the work of the King Center at thekingcenter.org.
I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Leave us a review if you can. I would love to hear from you. By the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Sebastian Gomes and engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.